WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. We're going to take a trip right now. Like we always do about this time. This is a journey into sound. I'm Kyle Long, and you're listening to a special edition of Cultural Manifesto. On this week's show, we'll be celebrating two of Indiana's most significant cultural icons, the jazz guitarist Wes Montgomery and the poet Etheridge Knight. March 6th marks the 100th anniversary of Wes Montgomery's birth. To celebrate, we'll be listening to excerpts from a never-before-heard recording of Wes Montgomery performing live at the Circle Theater in downtown Indianapolis on April 29th of 1964. I'll also talk to the concert's promoter, Herb Miller, who will share his memories of working with Wes Montgomery. And on the second half of this week's show, I'll introduce a new segment on Cultural Manifesto, Finding Etheridge, hosted by Matt Davis. Finding Etheridge will explore the people and places connected to the famous Indianapolis poet Etheridge Knight. This week, Matt's guest will be Michael L.L. Collins. Let's start this week's show with an excerpt from Wes Montgomery's 1964 performance at the Circle Theater. We'll hear Wes Montgomery performing The Days of Wine and Roses with George Brown on drums and Naptown's own Mel Ryan on organ. Thank you. 
just heard an excerpt of a never-before-heard live recording of Wes Montgomery performing at the Circle Theater in 1964. That recording was preserved and digitized by Rick Wilkerson of the Indiana Music History Project. I recently spoke with Rick about the significance of this recording. Let's join our conversation you have a never-before-heard live concert recording of Wes Montgomery performing at the Circle Theater in 1964. What can you share with us about this recording? Well, first of all, it's not a great recording, um, so it'll probably never get released commercially. But uh, the fact that it exists at all is a surprise and a pleasant one. This turned up in uh, a friend of mine, Larry DeMeyer's uh, record collection. He was getting ready to get rid of everything, and he said, oh, by the way, I got these tapes. And there were several live recordings of um, jazz in Indianapolis from the mid-60s that someone had made on a very cheap three-inch reel tape recorder. But considering the fact that he was probably sitting fairly far back, it's a pretty good recording. I mean, if you were familiar with the uh, bootleg recordings that you might buy at the uh, alternative record stores back in the 60s and 70s and you took them home and you're like, well, that's not a very good recording, but at least I get to hear it. That's what this is. This is a bootleg essentially. And uh, it, it, we're just lucky that it ended up in my hands, not because I'm thrilled to get it, but because we get to preserve it. You know, th- this is the kind of stuff that we lose all the time, every day. People throw stuff out in dumpsters, not realizing how wonderful it might be to preserve it. And so we're just really lucky to have this recording. And I'm, I'm just gr- so grateful that it found me. Yeah, and remind folks how they can learn more about the work you're doing. And if someone has tapes in their basement, garage, attic, (laughs) suitcase, wherever they are, they can get in touch with you, photos, anything. Yeah, remind folks of where they can find more information about your work. Absolutely. Go to indianafound.org. We've got a contact form on there. You can find out about how to donate uh, funds, but also how to donate memorabilia, miscellaneous stuff like tapes and signage and flyers and all that stuff. And we just want to save this stuff. That's how we, that's why we started because stuff wasn't being saved. We kept hearing about dumpster loads of wonderful things disappearing and we just don't want that to happen to our history. That was Rick Wilkerson of the Indiana Music History Project. Let's hear another excerpt from Wes Montgomery's 1964 concert at the Circle Theater. Known today as the Hilbert Circle Theater, the current home of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. Up next, we'll hear Wes Montgomery's incredible solo on The Breeze and I. (laughs) ¶¶ 
just heard an excerpt of a never-before-heard live recording of Wes Montgomery performing at the Circle Theater. I recently spoke with the concert's promoter, Herb Miller. Among music fans, Herb Miller is best known as the founder of the Indianapolis soul music label Lamp Records. Prior to forming Lamp, Herb promoted concerts with the Defiance Club, a non-profit African-American social club that staged major concerts in Indianapolis. Herb served as the club's president from the early 1960s to the mid-1970s. The Defiance Club were trailblazers in the Indianapolis music scene. The club was formed during the waning days of segregation, and the Defiance were among the first black promoters in Indianapolis to work with the city's major venues, including the Indiana Roof Ballroom, Circle Theater, the Riverside Park Ballroom, and Bush Stadium. Herb told me that all the concerts the Defiance Club produced were fundraisers for charitable causes and organizations, including Wes Montgomery's 1964 appearance at the Circle Theater. Let's join my conversation with Herb Miller as we discuss his memories of working with Wes Montgomery and his attempts to record Wes with Lamp Records' star group, The Vanguards. This concert, Gloria Lynn, Wes Montgomery at the Circle Theater, it happened on April 29th of 1964. And, and Herb, you told me that you dealt with Wes Montgomery personally when you were planning this concert and that you'd kind of grown up with him. One of your older brothers was friends with Wes. Is that right? Right. I had an older brother and an older sister. There was um, a, a gentleman, a drummer, a jazz drummer. His name was Larry Liggett. He was a personal friend of my uh, brother and sister, my older brother and sister. My brother's older uh, a couple of years than my sister, and he's about six or seven years older than uh, he was than me. And a few of these individuals would show up and end up at my house for some reason uh, when I lived on Martindale. And I remember they had little parties in the back and, you know, they would come over and, you know, whatever, you know, the teenagers were doing back at that time or young adults. And Wes Montgomery was one of the few people that was there off and on. You know, Wes Montgomery primarily played at nightclubs here in Indianapolis, you know, just little neighborhood nightclubs. This was one of the biggest concerts he ever played in Indianapolis. Do you have any memory of whether or not he was uh, excited about this show? Do you have any memories of kind of how he felt about the concert and uh, this opportunity to, to perform at the Circle Theater with Gloria Lynn? Right. He did feel good about it because he was able to play in a in a larger venue here because i think one of the problems with with uh with less was that he didn't like to travel mm -hmm. and he didn't like to fly and he that's what he was doing he was primarily locked down in in uh, all of these small local and there were a lot of them all of these small uh local jazz clubs here locally and uh, 
when I talked to him um, about doing this show, he was elated. And um, this was um, this was a major event for him because it was a headliner. He was always behind someone else, uh, even as good as he was uh, as an individual uh, player, of course. Uh, you know, Cannonball Adderley mm-hmm. and, and, and the other people uh, that he played with, he was on the bill with them, but he was always underneath Cannonball or some of the other, other people. So, yes, this was a big thing for him. Do you have any memories of the event? I know you've done so much in your life and you've promoted so many concerts, but does anything, when you think about that night, when you think about that concert, does anything stand out in your memory? The biggest problem that we had in in promoting these shows was being able to sign the contracts with in the vent with the venues because of the the racial conflicts. Mm. I believe uh, that uh, we were one of the the first groups, and I was the first one I know to sign a contract with um, Riverside when we did the James Brown thing, and I believe that uh, Circle Theater was. Uh, um, in downtown Indianapolis and very difficult. Uh, I know I spent a lot of time trying to get in into that venue. So this, these things were big because these uh, entertainers were coming in here, going into major venues, and they weren't going into the local clubs. The, the big part of it was uh, coming up with a venue that was large enough and, and, and was, you know, more exclusive uh, like Circle Theater and and uh, uh, the Indiana Roof Ballroom and you know other places that we uh, we held our our dances uh, and concerts uh, were places where most people had never been before. A lot of people had never been before. Right, segregation was still a factor up until around this time in terms of uh, which. Uh, dance halls, which concert halls were available to black pr- promoters and black music uh, fans, right? Right. That yeah. that was that was one of the problems. But this was a this was a great concert. Glor- uh, Gloria Lynn and Westman C- Gummer were uh, known at that time as jazz as jazz greats, and this show at the Circle Theater uh, was um, uh, actually in 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 uh, in papers outside of Indianapolis, you know, the uh, uh, Louisville, Detroit, uh, as far as, as California and, 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 and New York, because Wes was known in California, and he lived in California at one point. And Herb, you stayed in touch with Wes Montgomery to some extent after this concert, and you told me something recently that just blew my mind. You know, you founded Lamp Records in the late 1960s, your star group was the Vanguards, and they went in to record their debut single, Somebody Please. And and tell me this story. You tried to get Wes Montgomery to uh, contribute to this session. Is that right? Right. I, I wanted to do uh, this con- uh, guitar riff, and, of course, he came to mind. He was the only one that would come to mind. And I wanted him to put this together for me and help me put this you know, uh, as part of the project, because in my eyesight, that was going to be the big, uh, one of the major parts of Somebody Please. West, um, of course, uh, was uh, already recording, 
and he already had a manager and he was already uh, uh, contracted with a record company. I believe it was Riverside Records at the time. And without doing it behind the scenes, he couldn't do it. Uh, he was the first one that I approached to, to, uh, to do that uh, guitar opening for somebody, please. That's incredible. That record has become so iconic among soul music fans, and I don't think anyone anywhere has any idea that you initially envisioned Wes Montgomery to uh, play that intro. That's incredible. <laughs> right. Well, he, he was the only guitar player that uh, I felt was capable, you know? Yeah. And uh, um, he, he, he just couldn't do it. Logistics and contractual... Uh, he couldn't do it uh, as an individual, you know, for a personal favor, he would have done it in a heartbeat, mm. but he, uh, he just couldn't pull away from his contractual obligations. And that's the kind of guy he was, mm. you know, um, uh, to me, he was upfront, straightforward and put a lot of pressure on himself, I think. And that, that is maybe one of the things that ended his life because he died of a heart attack in 68, but um he was he he if he wanted to do it right and i wanted to ask you about that herb shortly after you approached him about this as you mentioned he died of a heart attack he was in his mid 40s did that shock you do you remember how you reacted to uh, that the news that west montgomery had died uh, it, it shocked everyone yeah i mean at, at his age um you know it, it was hard to believe uh that that uh that that he you know I mean he was he he was a legend, and if you had a the opportunity to ever meet him, you would know how much of a legend he was. And when I found out that that uh, he had passed away, it was just, I mean you know I mean it's like it was like using a, a losing a member of your own family. Mm. And there's a great picture of you, Wes, and Gloria Lynn after the concert at the Circle Theater. And I'm going to share that online if it's all right with you so folks can go to my Facebook or Instagram page and see this photo. Any final thoughts you want to share about this concert or your memories of Wes Montgomery? Anything I didn't ask you about, Herb, that you'd want to share with people? Well, uh, the concert, of course, went off without a hitch. Um, it was a full house. Um, everything was beautiful. Uh, Wes and Gloria did a fantastic job you know they showed up and and uh, and 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 did what they what they normally do but one of the things that i was always proud of is that these venues that we went into everyone was dressed to the t hmm. people there were no fights no uh nothing i mean this was just um uh, the uh, the venues and most of the things that uh, that we did as, as as a club or an organization um, and this one, along with any of the others, just went off without a hitch. The, the, this is what's memorable. It was a great concert. I can just say it was a great, fantastic concert. Thank you so much, Herb, for taking time to share your memories. This is just, there's so much extraordinary information you have. Um, we never talked about this before, and I really appreciate you taking time to share all this. Okay, as always, Cal, thank you, uh, because uh, you're an Indianapolis treasure. <laughs> You are too. Thank you, Herb. I appreciate it. That was Herb Miller, 
founder of the Indianapolis soul music label Lamp Records, and the promoter of Wes Montgomery's 1964 concert at the Circle Theater. Let's hear one more excerpt from this never-before-heard live recording of Wes Montgomery performing at the Circle Theater. This is Fried Pies. the West Montgomery Trio with Fried Pies, recorded live at the Circle Theater in 1964. Thanks again to Rick Wilkerson of the Indiana Music History Project for sharing this never-before-heard recording. Cultural Manifesto will return after this short break. I'm Kyle Long, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. Up next, we'll share the first edition of a new segment on Cultural Manifesto, Finding Etheridge, with Matt Davis. Finding Etheridge will explore the history of the late Indianapolis poet Etheridge Knight. Matt's guest this week will be Michael L.L. Collins. During their conversation, Michael and Matt discussed Etheridge Knight's skill at toasting, a unique form of folk poetry. Before we join Finding Etheridge, let's listen to Etheridge Knight reading one of his famous toasts, I Sing of Shine. This poem is out of black male oral tradition. Very few of these poems have been published until recently. They're like folk poems, uh, uh, folk songs, uh, and, and, and like uh, uh, folk tales and things. They usually deal with personified uh, animals, and, uh, catastrophes. Uh, anyway, th- this particular one has to do with shine and sinking of the Titanic. And yeah, brothers, while white America sings about the unsinkable Molly Brown, who was hustling the Titanic when it went down, I sing to thee of shine, the stoker who was free enough to flee the ship and let the white folks drown with screams on their lips. Jumped his black ass in the dark sea, shine did, broke free from the straining steel. 
Yeah, I seen the shot and how the millionaire banker ran on the deck and pulled from his pockets a million dollar check saying, shine, shine, save poor me and I'll give you all the money a black boy needs. And Al Shine looked at the money and then at the sea and said, jump in, mother swim like me. And Shine swam on, and Shine swam on. And how the banker's daughter ran naked on the deck with a pink trembling and her pants round her neck saying, shine, shine, save poor me. And I give you all the black boy needs. And Al Shine said, now, good and that's no jab but you got to swim not to stay alive and shine swam on and shine swam on and I shine swam past the preacher floating on a board crying save me shine in the name of the Lord and how the preacher grabbed the shine's arm and broke his stroke and shine pulled his shank and cut the preacher's throat and shine swam on and Shine swam on. And when the news hit shore that the Titanic had sunk, Shine was up in Harlem, damn near drunk. <laughs> Let's join Matt Davis with Finding Etheridge. This is Matt Davis, and you're listening to Finding Etheridge on Cultural Manifesto. Finding Etheridge explores the people and places connected to the Pulitzer Prize-nominated poet Etheridge Knight. Etheridge Knight was born in Mississippi in 1931. He began writing in the 1960s while serving time at the Indiana State Prison. Or, as Etheridge wrote in his famous 1968 book, Poems from Prison, I died in Korea from a shrapnel wound and narcotics resurrected me. I died in 1960 from a prison sentence and poetry brought me back to life. Etheridge Knight died in Indianapolis, Indiana in March 1991 but his legacy grows ever stronger with each passing year. The idea of ancestry. I am all of them, they are all of me. I know their style, they know mine. I was beginning to forget who I was. My guest this week is Michael L.L. Collins. Michael L.L. Collins is an Indianapolis native, veteran poet, writer, and literary critic. Michael received his B.A. in African-American studies and minor in English from Indiana State. He dedicated his life to the black arts movement as a writer. Michael was a close friend and protege of Etheridge Knight. He was one of the last participants of the Free People's Workshop and has written several chapbooks of haiku inspired by Etheridge Knight. Michael, thanks for, for being here, man. It's an honor to have you as our first guest with Finding Etheridge. How you been? Uh, doing pretty good. Uh, it's 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 an honor to be here. Sweet, yeah. No, uh, I've been been excited to talk with you about this uh, for a long time, and uh, I think that this is the perfect way to share not only your story but you know just your perspective on Etheridge, his life, his work, his impact. Um, so let's jump right into it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, and your background, and also how you first met Etheridge Knight? Uh, when I was at Indiana State University, one of the things. Um, people in the black literature community know about Indiana State University is the home of Black American Literature Forum, which is the premier intellectual book that the English teachers read um, and it's where a lot of them publish. We didn't, we, didn't, we didn't do a lot of poetry, but I was a poetry consultant there. Um, 
are probably probably the only poetry consultant that didn't have a damn book. <laughs> okay. But I was a student there and I was available and I was cheap and I was available. <laughs> okay. So um, uh, I did a lot of programming in uh, for, for literature and we brought um, Etheridge in once. And, uh, and so it's not, I tell people is, I didn't really start having a relationship with Etheridge till later in his life, but I knew who he was. I'd ran into him a couple of times. I knew uh, Eunice's son. I'm, I'm friends with friends with Charles. I think Charles is his nephew. His nephew, and Eunice is his sister. Right. And Eunice, of course, is, is Etheridge's sister. Okay, and they told me they relate to Etheridge, but I didn't want to talk to, talk to him about it. And um, I tell people, I'm not a church boy, but I'm almost a church boy. And uh, when you grow up, there's, there's certain people they tell you not to hang around with. Don't hang out around with ex-cons. Don't hang around with uh, with drug addicts. Okay. And I say I don't care how much I like Etheridge's poems. I, hey, like, I, I, hey, I like my mom and my dad too. I got to honor my mom and my dad. I, I can't hang around with him. <laughs> okay. All right. They, like I say, one of the first lessons I learned as a kid is be careful who you hang out with. They gotta get you in trouble. And um, Dan Carpenter wrote an article one 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 year. And it said that Etheridge is in the hospital at VA. And uh, I guess I thought about the Martin Luther King line. You know, how do you want to be remembered? And what did you do in your life? Did you go visit the sick? You know, did you help feed the homeless? And I said, you know, Etheridge is at the VA hospital. Okay, I don't care if he's ex-con. Okay, I'm going to disobey my parents. I said, how, you know, how harmless can he? How, how much harm can he do for me <laughs> when when he up in VA hospital? Okay, he can't hurt me. Okay, I'm grown. I'm a grown man now. <laughs> okay, so I go up to VA, and that was great because when I went to visit, he was sleeping knocked out all the time. All I did was sit by his bedside. And after he got out, you know, and he got better, he was telling about the Free People's Workshop and. Um, uh, I, I love I love those years. Me and Etheridge hang out and just being friends and uh, just going over his apartment, talking to him. And uh, one of the things too is that, that everybody tells you not to meet your heroes. Okay, one of the good things about Etheridge is Etheridge had such a bad reputation. You know, is 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 anything he would have did at first, you would have been impressed by it. Okay, what kind of places did Etheridge like to hang out at? We used to hang out with the Free Papers Workshop. Um, that was at the Chatterbox. The Chatterbox. Right? Yeah, the Chatterbox. Yeah. The Chatterbox. It was my favorite place to go. Shouts out to the Chatterbox, um, by the way. We hang out there. We used to, used to do the art galleries up and down Mass Avenue. And this was um, early 80s, right when Mass Avenue was just starting to come around again. But, that, uh, you know, that was a good place for them to live right on the avenue because uh, all that stuff was in walking distance. Is that where he lived at? He lived right triple nickel. So I want to switch gears a little bit. And so I wanted you to share your thoughts about Etheridge Knight's philosophy on poetry and writing as a whole. Like what what was his perspective on the craft from in your view? The major thing Etheridge talked about was the oral nature of poetry. Etheridge talked about the connection and the synergy between the poet, the people, the poem. 
the poet, the people, the poem. The go. poet, the people, the poem. The poet, the people, the poem. The poet, the people, the poem. The poet, the people, the poem. And that's that's one of the things I liked about Etheridge once I met him. He is his poetry. The rhythms of how he talks, the rhythm of how he thinks. I can I can hear I it was in his poetry. He was he wasn't nobody different than what you read about. One of the great things about Etheridge's workshop was, for me as a especially for me as a black person was, he wanted everybody to be themselves. A lot of times when I'm in workshops, and I'm with a workshop and it's led by a workshop white person, they want everybody to be themselves, okay? But they want a but the but they want everybody to be homogenized, okay? And I got to fight to be black. Okay, I didn't have to be fighting to be black. This is early, late 80s, before the um, cultural diversity, before all this stuff came along. We had black people in there. We had Indians in there. We had male, female. Okay, we had Hispanics in that group. Okay, I didn't even know there was damn Hispanics in the city. Okay, how he, he didn't find a Hispanic poet. <laughs> okay, but ethics, like I said, is, um, and I'm nearly sure, Okay, we had people from, from LGBT community in the group because Etheridge wanted people to be open and, and true to your authentic self. Okay, and uh, can't nobody, hey, he, he didn't let nobody else tell you, um, don't let nobody else tell you who you are. Okay, and don't let nobody else redefine you. And, and even then, your, your own, your, even though you're black, you're, you have an individual blackness as well. Okay, be true to that. Can you talk about how Etheridge was unique as a poet? You know, like the way that he had a really distinct sense of voice early on, like from the beginning, and then he had a really creative use of the literary devices. Can I, you speak to that about him? You know, the thing, too, is everybody's true to the individual self, but one of the things, too, that I like about the 60s, I, I, I love when somebody asked me who my favorite poet was, and they expect me to ask Etheridge. I like. I told him I like the '60s era. The '60s era is about collective, about people coming together and stuff like that. Is if I believe in that all that, and then I name somebody so so unique, and I got one above the other, that defeats the damn purpose. Am I right? If I believe in the social equality and everything, but I got a favorite. <laughs> okay, you know, is I'm I'm doing I'm doing animal farm on y'all. <laughs> Okay, all right. You you asked me you asked me to create an animal farm. I ain't doing that. Okay, I love Etheridge. I like his work, but I'm not gonna put him above everybody else. I'm gonna tell you what he was doing was unique. Okay, everybody was doing the same thing, but he damn had a good voice, and he put his voice out there. Okay, I think one of the things too is is if anything, not as a poet, but as a poet, poet poetry leader, that's where he was unique at. I wanted to ask you about Etheridge's approach to the craft itself, like the way he created his work. I mean, he brought so many different influences from just black culture in general that had never really made it to the page yet. Like, for example, toasting, shining. I mean, these are African-American traditions that go back as far as we've been doing culture. And the way he brought that to the craft is really unique. Yeah, thank you for bringing that back around to me because one of the, one thing very different than Etheridge, okay, is um, Etheridge. 
Can I read a poem? Absolutely. Okay. Trust the muse. I studied haiku in the Free People's Workshop with Etheridge Knight, who taught that haiku should not be controlled language. The elegance of the 575 form should be so subtle that it could easily be a mere dialogue, like one between the mentor, the muse, and the friend. Okay, that's a haiku. It goes seven. It, it, it follows the 575 form. It's a leaked haiku. Okay, but one of the things Ethers told me one time is... Thank you for sharing that, by the way. Is, um, Bert Bachrach died recently, and, and one of the things he said about songwriting is to use only words that only have a couple of symbols and no big, long, no elaborate words. I think Gwendolyn Brooks criticized Ethers' early poems, okay, for using elaborate words. He said, you don't need all that, okay? Uh, one of the things about Etheridge, Etheridge, Etheridge could spit his poems, okay? And he, he could just drop them in conversation, okay? Um, and he could toast, too. My friend James uh, Depp, he said he knew him back in the street days, okay? And he verified his reputation. And he said Etheridge could toast on, hey, Etheridge could stay out of the liquor store and, and toast with the best of them. Shouts out to James Depp from uh, Midtown Writers Association, by the way. Yeah. James Depp founded Cafe Coomba here in Indianapolis, um, okay? I can I just, I'm thinking a lot of different stories about Etheridge. Etheridge, one time, there was somebody, a poet that came up to him, was trying to brag. I guess he was trying to tell him how good his poetry was and, and, and his book and everything. And I guess he didn't know that Etheridge had a book, okay? And, uh, and Etheridge says, my book's in the library. That's all he said. He said, your, your book's out. Hey, your book, you got you got to pedal it door to door and sell it to me. My book's in the library, okay? All right. Where your book at? Okay. When he said my book's in the library, he was saying my book is everywhere. Oh, oh, street dudes, old dudes like Etheridge cut you with a razor. Uh, when you cut, if you haven't been cut with a razor, you got to check because you don't feel the cut. You don't feel the cut. When you walk away and you're bleeding, <laughs> then you know. <laughs> then you know. Okay, somebody else got to tell you you've been cut. <laughs> and Etheridge used to cut on people. Etheridge is described as a blues poet sometimes. My uh, interpretation of his work and the way I've received it, uh, I think that that's really appropriate and spot on. What I are think, your thoughts about yeah. his his blues influence? I think... Um, I think he, 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 he dipped in the whole black tradition. Blues, jazz, toast. Uh, the whole oral tradition of that, um, which really goes into your last question, which I should have asked that. that was, so that made it a great follow-up question. You, you did I'm doing good, Matt. <laughs> okay. But um, when, I was, when I was with him, we started the jazz poetry session. I wish I would have did a blues session. Blues or blues session because he he he's more he's got more of a blues feeling. But one of the things is um, he got he's been included in the jazz anthologies. But he's, he mentions more jazz artists in his poetry. One of his first poems I think was about uh, Dion Dion Dino Washington. Thank you. Okay, I always mispronounce her name, so thank thank th- thank you. But anyway. You talk about the blues. What is, what is, what, 
Where's Etheridge born at? Corinth, Corinth Mississippi. Mississippi. What is Corinth, Mississippi? Okay, what is Mississippi? When you th- hey, do you think about jazz? When you think about Mississippi, you think about the blues. And if you look on the map, that ain't far from Memphis. Okay, you know, oh, I, I bet you I, I, I shell up some dirt there. It'll, it'll sing the blues to me. <laughs> okay, it must be the blues in there. You talked about how you were influenced by the 60s style. Obviously, Poems from Prison uh, came out in 1968. So did Black Voices from Prison, which followed it. Can you talk about the black arts movement? Like, what is the black arts movement in your words? Yeah, and, then, and then what was Etheridge's role within it? And maybe speak about some of his contemporaries, too. I think um, I, think I want to mention Mari—somehow I, oh, I want to put Maria Evans in here because she was came in the, the same era. I think also, too, is—now, I'd rather the other poets speak for themselves, but I, the, the question I would ask them is, did— Etheridge bring more of this authenticity to the black arts movement. Okay, well, let's let's slow down just real quick because because he because he lived in the streets. Okay, because uh, some of them still were, or a lot of them were tied to the academics. And I don't want to cut you off, but can can you talk first about what the black arts movement is in your words? In my words, and then Etheridge's role in okay. And so forth. I think um, during that time, it was before social media. You have to have people that speak for the community and speak to the community and, and, and have an immediacy. Well, one of the things I was more aware of, the Black Lives Matter movement, I was aware of that long before then because I can remember poets um, like, let's say, Audre Lorde that came up. And she said, every city I go to, every city I go to, I hear a story about somebody black that died from the police. Okay. These are stories everywhere. Okay, every reading I do, because she had a poem she talked about. After after that, someone would tell her a story about somebody locally. Here we would talk about Herman. Okay, right now, right now, every people know that. Okay, people wouldn't know that nationally. I can remember back in the day when you talk to people, general people. I like to say general people. Let's just say white folks. Okay, about a black person getting beat. First thing they ask you, what did he do? Okay, what did he do? Okay, all right. Then they, they say, that's not what the police report says. Okay, and then you try to convince them that the police report ain't the authority on this. No. I say, you know, we know what's going on in our community. Okay. Um, Why do you think poetry was the outlet for that era when it comes to black resistance and revolutionary thought? Because poetry wasn't beholden to nobody. Okay? Uh, One of the reasons for for that was poetry don't make no damn money. You can't, so they can't be bought out. (laughs) Okay? What about the way that audiences received it? What what about the way that that black people received the poets? And I think that's too, is uh, people want, people want, people were receptive, people want to hear from things. And that's what I'm saying is um, everybody wanted to hear from things. And, and you want, I don't know, is uh, most black folks go to a black church. We don't just want to hear about God. We want to be entertained by God. <laughs> okay? All right? It's poetry's entertainment. And if poetry can, can say that, and also too is one of the things about poetry too is uh, I think of slogans, an era of slogans. 
And basically, a haiku is a, is a slogan. How do you concisely say what's going on in the street in a few words? Poetry. Uh, you can't do it on a novel. Can't do it in a short story. You can do it in a poem. Why did you dedicate your life and your work to the black arts movement in the manner in which you have? I, I, I was a fool. <laughs> I was stupid, okay? I mean, you make, you make it look good, though. No, no, no. I'm going to tell you right now. Like I said, is um, you don't make no damn money in it. What the hell am I doing in this stuff for, okay? Well, aside from that. Aside from oh, that. Oh, oh, I was arrogant, too, okay? When I was young, I used to read books of poetry, and um, I'm thinking, I can write better than that, <laughs> okay? And I'm thinking, I used to read these anthologies, and um, they'd be anthologies, and they and they they'd do the youngest poets in there. I said, that's going to be me in there one time. It still ain't me yet, <laughs> okay? But I've also quit writing poetry. And I, not, I haven't quit, but I've quit, quit in, in a lot of, in some ways I've quit, quit and still do. But one of the things, too, is after Etheridge died, you know, death changes. Death of a close friend changes you. Yeah. And changes your outlook totally. So I've got to think about, I can't even think about why I did that. Now, I, I, is right now all I do is haiku. Okay. That's, um, that's what my life lends itself to. I'm not going to, that's why I say I quit writing. I don't write poetry anymore. All I do is write haiku. You know, after you got that poem, F Everything? That's yeah. why I wanted to F Everything. The name of that poem is Feeling F'd Up, by the way. Feeling F'd That's from Belly Song. Ah, I, I can't read it over the air because it's got too many F words in it. Literally cannot read that over there. I definitely cannot read that over there. Okay. But anyway, that's how I felt. I wanted to quit writing. And one of the reasons for that, too, is um, I didn't want to be a great writer anymore. After Etheridge, I said, look, I don't want to be a great writer. Uh, I, I've seen the type of sacrifices and, and things that made Etheridge great. And I figured, one of the things, too, is I figured, one, is I'm not going to be greater than that. And I'm not going to pay the price he paid to be that great. I'm not going to prison. <laughs> I'm not getting on drugs. And I'm not getting off of drugs. Okay? That's the, nah, that's the, that's the hard thing. Getting on drugs ain't hard. <laughs> and getting off the drugs. <laughs> okay. Can you speak more directly about Mari Evans' influence on Mari, you? I, I, I love her poem, Speak the Truth to the People. Speak the truth to the people. I'll I, I tell, li tell you how much I like Mari. Mari didn't like one of my poems. And I consider that a badge of honor. Mari... I'm walking one time. I come with, I'm going to Black Expo, and I, and Mari's going in, and we're going both going. I, this is what I liked about Mari. Is I used to see Mari all the time, just walking down the street, and I'd be thinking, I, you know, I'm, I'm an English major, and I'm, I'm starstruck. Everybody just walking past her and stuff. I say, don't you know that Mari? <laughs> but but she's also she's also a person of the people. Okay. She's a person of the people. Um, I, I, uh, but the thing is, she, when she came into a black expo one time, she said, Michael, I don't like, I don't like the poem. And then she told me why she didn't like it. She, she said it's full, full of stereotypical images, and you could do better than that. 
what am I supposed to do? Tell Mari she wrong? And she was right. And I didn't see, I thought I was playing against the stereotype, and I was. I was playing, I, I was using the stereotype as a joke. Okay. But she said, is you got to be careful joking because other people don't really, hey, other people don't realize that sometimes is, is the joke is on you. Okay. I like it. The poem was, was Watermelon Man. Okay. It's one of the few poems I've got published. Okay. And once you got it published, it's out there. Okay. And, uh, and I like it because it's, uh, it pays homage to Herbie Hancock. Okay, and to me, that's what it was more about. It was more about Herbie Hancock than Watermelon Man. But then again, too, it's a stereotype, and and, and uh, you got you got to be careful. How, how, plan, you got to be careful as a black person playing with stereotypes. Um, one of the things I loved about Mari, okay, or, or, or well, um, when whenever I'd run into Mari, this is what she'd say. That's Michael. He's a poet. You know how people cut you with a knife? You know how people pat you on the back? They just give you a... That, that don't seem like much of a compliment, do it? That don't seem like much of a... But she knew my name. She knew I was a poet. She, she knows how important poetry is to me. Okay? For her to acknowledge that I'm a poet. Okay? I said, damn. I rest of my life, I sit there and say, Mari says I'm a poet. <laughs> okay, damn what anybody else says. Okay, damn, Mari says I'm a poet. Talk to me about the significance of the fact that both Mari Evans and Ethers Knight died on the exact same day. Oh, oh the serendipity of that. Both of them, both of them poets in the same, same era. Both of them had workshops at the Indiana Women's Prison. Both of them are buried at Crown Hill. Both of them are buried next to their families. The general perception of Etheridge's legacy, and I think it's moving away from this now, is that he's a prison poet and he's kind of been locked into that. But above and beyond that, obviously the scope and depth of his work is far beyond the prison walls. I think uh, I'm glad that's changing a little bit. I, I read... Um, uh, a, a bio of him recently. I, I try to read all the bios of him, and uh, towards the end of towards the end, what what Ethridge says, I, um, I know that I write prison poems, but I don't write about, I don't write prison poems. I write freedom poems. I write about freedom, and that's how you th- and that and that's now I think that's how people are reading his work. Okay, um, and talk about the major themes and. In his work, um, he talks about human relationships. He talks about family more, family more than he does prison. Okay, all right, and and even even overlapping. Okay, he's got uh, a song from uh, so, a song from my father, born of a woman. Okay, all right, Michael, can you share one thing that you feel isn't known or understood about Etheridge Knight? Either that be something personally about him or his work? I, I, I think I've said it all. You know, the, it's, I just repeat what I, I've said already. Um, I think uh, one of the things I, me and you have had a conversation, and I changed my perceptions about it. Like anybody, I changed my perceptions about Etheridge. Um, I try not to say it a lot, and I try not to emphasize it a lot. Uh, 
You know, sometimes I say Etheridge is a kind man. But Etheridge Knight was very charismatic. Okay? And that's a better way to put it. Okay? Um, I'd like to... I like to say he was a shapeshifter, okay? But he wasn't a shapeshifter in the American sense. He was a shapeshifter in the very African sense. And I, since I can't, I can't get to that, since I don't understand it, I can't make you understand it, make anybody else understand it, hmm. okay? But it's, um, and it t- that's one of the things, too, is, is, is when he, when he di- I have to think about when he died, I had to reevaluate my relationship with Etheridge because everybody else was telling me how close they were to Etheridge, and I, I thought I was close. But one of the things, too, one of the good things about Etheridge at, uh, when he was alive, when you knew, when people knew him, they felt they were close to him. Okay, they felt they knew him. That's because Etheridge, Etheridge, Etheridge let you know who he let you know who he was uh, personally. I like, I like, I like the brother. Okay. Is there anything else you want to say about Etheridge as your friend? Uh, I'll, I'll tell him in person. Okay. I, was, I visited. I, the, the, I, see, 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 I'm stuttering now? Yeah, okay. Okay. I visited. I go to the cemetery every once in a while. I know where the graveside is. And uh, I don't say a lot there. I, 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 I let my soul do the speaking. Okay, and uh, I figured if there wasn't nothing, I said, hey, you know what they say, if you ain't bad enough to tell me in person, don't be sitting there talking about me, how I'm on my back. I said, after he said, look, look, you, you was up in the graveside, you had nothing to say to me. Now somebody asked you how I feel about you. Now you want to tell everybody. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, is one of the things, too, one, one, one of the perceptions I want to, to I think, um, in respect to the Etheridge Knight family, okay, um, I want to tell you people is Etheridge, academics will try to sit there and try to lift up Etheridge by, by, pu- by pushing him down, by telling you that, that when he was a kid that he wasn't educated. Etheridge was smart, but also Etheridge was street smart. And uh, he did a lot of reading, and uh, his family was very, wasn't literate, like college educated literate, but all uh, his mother wrote songs, and but he came from a background that a background that respected the arts. Okay, but it was it wasn't the arts that you read about in school books. It was the arts in the church, and we and we didn't even call it art. Okay, it was just it was just life. This is what you do. It, which is what life, what Etheridge says. That's what art is. Is what you do. The this this is this is the craft we have. This is the, this is the oral tradition we pass down our knowledge, pass down our history. Okay, and what it, that's and that's what he had in his family already. Michael L. L. Collins, thank you so much. And for, Matt, well, with just one T. With just one T. Just one T. Yep, uh, that's all I needed. Thank you so much for your insight, your wisdom, um, and just everything that you've shared about Etheridge uh, as a friend, as a mentor, and as a, uh, an example for everybody. And I hope you all listen, enjoy the show, and, and uh, listen to Etheridge. And because, uh, like I say, everything I say, Etheridge says better than I do.
Stay tuned to Cultural Manifesto for future editions of Finding Etheridge. And check out the Finding Etheridge podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have stories, memories, or photos related to Etheridge Night, contact us at findingetheridge at gmail.com. We might include you in an upcoming episode of Finding Etheridge or in the upcoming stage play documenting the life of Etheridge Night. Finding Etheridge is produced by Kyle Long and hosted and co-produced by me, Matt Davis. That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you for tuning in. And thank you to our guests, Herb Miller, Michael L.L. Collins, and Rick Wilkerson of the Indiana Music History Project. I'm Kyle Long, and you've been listening to Cultural Manifesto.